Today's reading is taken from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, and again chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to discuss this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as, they, as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the, the, the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, Listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now chapter 16. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconian spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decision reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lexi. Uh, if you can keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter 15, it's uh, page 897 in Church Bibles as we go through it. Uh, let's pray that God will speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your living word, and we pray that it will cut us to in our hearts, that it will shape us as a people who, um, who live to glorify your name in every area of our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'll give us the listening ears and hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'm sorry, if you are uh, the note-taking type, the notes, the outline is completely wrong. It's uh, four different points now. Um, so if you can ignore the points that are at the back, that'd be great. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, on May 24th, 1738, during a meeting at Aldersgate, John Wesley, already a minister in the Church of England, experienced God's saving grace and wrote in his diary of that day, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins. That changed his life and his ministry. He started to preach grace of Jesus Christ and urge people towards holy living, and rather than settling down in a church, in a church ministry, he became an itinerant preacher, going from church to church, region to region, speaking in private homes and marketplaces, in mines, hospitals, fields. And the movement grew so fast that there was now shortage of preachers. And so he trained lay people to preach. Thousands and thousands came to Christ through his ministry, which we now call Methodism. And out of it came anti-slavery movements, prison reform groups, relief agencies for the poor, and it transformed England at the time. But the Church of England, the Anglican Church at the time, rejected Wesley and his Methodism. Wesley himself was not welcome in many Anglican churches, and they looked down on him as a religious fanatic. Wesley brothers and their followers were often uh, greeted with taunts, verbal abuses, and sometimes even physical violence. It showed that the Anglican Church, unfortunately, didn't care all that much that people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that, being, that people were transformed by him in obedience to Christ because they couldn't see past their traditions. They could, couldn't see past what they were used to doing, and so they missed out on God's plan. And in a way, that's what happened to the Jews in the first century. They missed out for the same reason. Remember when Jesus came, they killed Jesus. They persecuted Peter afterwards, and they opposed Paul and Barnabas in their missionary trip because they couldn't see past their traditions. And that wasn't surprising. Because it was so unexpected. Jesus was so unexpected. But what is surprising, though, is who opposes this message in this chapter? In chapter 15, if you turn to 15, verse 1, you read, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers that unless they were circumcised, they couldn't be saved. 
they put it in stronger words in verse 5. The Gentiles must be circumcised and, and, and required to keep the law of Moses. See, these are Christians. These are Jewish Christians, people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ with Jewish background, were opposing, who were opposing Paul and Barnabas. These Christians were demanding that the Gentiles have to become Jews, be circumcised, and obey the laws of Moses. This was a crucial moment in the church history. What will the church do? How will they go forward? What will they say? In order to address this important issue, the first church council was called in Jerusalem in Acts 15. We're told that they discussed in verse 7. We don't know how long they discussed, hours, maybe for days. But towards the end of the discussion, Apostle Peter stands up in verse 7 and recalled what God had directed him to do in, back in chapter 10. Remember, he called in a dream uh, to share the gospel with Cornelius, uh, a, a Gentile centurion. God confirmed that this is what he wanted to do because as he preached to these Gentiles, to Cornelius and all the people there, God sent the Holy Spirit to confirm that they, these are his people, that God loves them just as they are. He also points out the hypocrisy of laying such a burden to the Gentiles in verse 10. He reminded them that they, the Jews, and their ancestors could not ever fulfill the law by themselves. Why then require the Gentiles to do something that they couldn't do themselves? He concludes in no uncertain words in verse 11. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. They are saved just as they are. The only thing that's required for anyone, Jews and Gentiles, to be a Christian, to be Christian is to receive salvation by faith, that through grace of Jesus Christ, receive the grace of Christ through faith. That's the only thing that's required of salvation. And God showed to Peter that it was he who planned this from the very beginning. And James, the brother of Jesus, then stands and to affirm Peter in verse 13. Uh, a circumcision party might have hoped that James might contradict Peter because James was known for his deeds. He was called James the Righteous because of his deeds. And if you read the letter to James, right, J James's letter in the Bible, you know how he emphasized the works. But if that's what they're hoping for, they were soon disappointed because he went on to say, Gentiles receiving salvation as they are is what the Bible had intended, what the prophets said, verse 15. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. And he quotes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. After this, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I'll restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles. Who bear my name. David's fallen tent is a funny way of saying David's house or the line of David, the house of David, the kingship of David. And here with the benefit of hindsight, we know that the David's fallen tent refers to Jesus, the king in the line of David. 
It was Jesus himself who said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days in John chapter 2. And he was destroyed. He was fallen, but God raised him up so that all mankind, whoever calls on his name, might receive the gift of salvation by faith in Christ Jesus, just as they are. You see, this wasn't something new that God was doing. Right? This was God's plan for all. It was something that God had planned from the very beginning, that the prophets prophesied for a long time that salvation would come to all those who call on Jesus' name, no matter who they are, wherever they are, who, uh, whatever ethnicity they are. And it's hard to appreciate how revolutionary this decision was in Acts 15. A council, if you imagine, the council was made up of old Jewish people, old Jewish men, right? They had grown up with the law of Moses all their lives. It wasn't just for them. I mean, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, for thousands of years, they held the law central to their identity. Uh, Circumcision was who they are. Law-keeping was who they are. They were forbidden from marrying the Gentiles to associate with Gentiles. And now they're saying it's no longer necessary to fulfill the laws that, that, that are there. The Christians don't have to be circumcised. That eating kosher meat is optional. That these things that were central, once central to their identity, now is just cultural. That it's secondary to their identity. This went against all of their Jewish instincts. What then replaced that law as central to their identity? Well, you heard it in verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved just as they are. They're saved just as they are. Grace of Jesus Christ became the thing that defined them. This is the thing that they hold onto over against all things. It wasn't that the law wasn't unimportant anymore. uh, In fact, Jesus fulfilled the law, right? As Peter pointed out in verse 10, they couldn't fulfill it themselves, but Jesus did. Jesus did fulfill every single part of the covenant, but instead instead of enjoying the covenant blessings, Jesus died a sinner's death on the cross in our place so that we who don't deserve it, who fall, who fail in keeping this law, could receive the blessing, his blessings. That's what what it means to be saved by grace of Jesus Christ. We're saved through his works and not our own. That's what defined their identity now, the gift of Jesus Christ. That's what unites Jewish people and Gentile people together in Christ. And of course, that's what unites all of us, people from all sorts of different backgrounds, sinners. We're sinners saved by grace. That's why we're all equals, because we're all beggars who found bread. I wonder how you're tempted, not whether you're tempted, but how you're tempted to add to that grace of Christ. And it's a matter of how, since we all do it. Our instinct is always to add to the grace of Christ, right? To feel good about ourselves by doing something, to, to, to say that well, I deserve something from God. I deserve God's blessings. What are some of the things that you do to feel like you deserve God's approval? And I think a good place to start is what you are doing now, right? What you, what you do now is a good place to start to see how we're tempted 
to add to God's blessings. You see, these Jewish Christians were still trying to keep the law themselves. That's why they wanted these other people to do it, because they're trying so hard to keep it, right? Because they're doing it, they want other people to do it. So what do we find? What are some of the things that we do that are so essential to us? Our Christian duties, the things that whisper, that we say, if I'm really a Christian, then I should do all these things. For me, as a pastor, it's church. I often think, if I'm really a Christian, then I would never miss a service. Always serve the church. Come to prayer meeting. The church defines my identity, and I sometimes impose that on you to think, actually, if you're really a Christian, then you would do these things for the church too. I don't know what it is for you. For some, it might be quiet time or not drinking or tithing or serving. It doesn't have to be what other people told you. It might be something that you are doing that's central to your identity. Friends, we're saved freely and radically by the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus told you so. The first council of the church decreed it. The Bible continues to say we're saved by grace alone. There's nothing that we can add to it. Adding to it means subtracting from what Jesus has done. So if there's anything that you're struggling with today, you're struggling with guilt of any kind, not being able to do the things that you think that you ought to do as a Christian, no matter where you are, know that you're freed. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved just as we are. And that's the good news that should be central to our identity because grace is for all. But if grace is also for all, it means that the church is for all people, right? What the council decided in Acts 15 is that the church is for all people as well. If God does not discriminate, Paul and Peter says in verse, 15, uh, verse 9, then we ought to not discriminate between races and social classes, gender or whatever. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male or female in Christ Jesus, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. We're all equal in God's eyes. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm sure none of us consider ourselves overtly a racist, elitist, or sexist, but actually living out what we believe is harder, right? It's difficult. In fact, Paul's letter to Galatians is written in between chapters 14 and chapters, uh, chapters 14 and 15, bef- after he returned from his missionary trip and before he goes up to Jerusalem. And there we find some interesting stuff, and we find a lot of this discussion in the letter to Galatians, and you've heard it in our series through Galatians. But there in Galatians, Paul reco- recalls this excruciatingly awkward moment where Peter came down to Antioch. He was fine at first mingling with Gentiles. He eats with them. He hangs out with them. But these men from Jerusalem arrive in, in Antioch. And when they do, Peter separates himself from the Gentiles. He doesn't eat with them anymore because, he, uh, uh, he writes in Galatians 2.12, because he was afraid of them. 
So Paul challenged him. If you have your Bibles out, take a look, Galatians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. It's a page on page 943 in the church Bibles. Galatians chapter 2, 14 through 16. Paul challenges Peter. When I saw that they were not acting in the line of truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, which is Peter's Hebrew name, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And he reminds them of the gospel again and how there is no distinction between Jews and the Gentiles in the gospel anymore. They were not acting in the line of gospel. It's not that Peter didn't know this truth. But it was hard to act in the line of gospel. It's hard to act in, to do what the gospel says in our daily lives. We do this too, don't we? We sometimes find it difficult to act on our belief that all people are equal, that all those who call on Jesus are brothers and sisters in Christ. Social scientists study, uh, who study implicit bias say that racial bias is everywhere. People don't think that they're racist. They believe in equality. And yet, we often behave differently from what we believe because we're also shaped by the culture, because we're shaped by our racial prejudice that's deep in our hearts. Would you welcome all people who come through these doors in Ch- to Shatin Church as brothers and sisters in Christ? Who would you find difficult to welcome into your life? People with tattoos? People with homosexual desires? I don't know, in Hong Kong, maybe people who support umbrella movement or pro-establishment, pro-China groups. But we don't have to go that far. Just start people, look around you. If you're a Caucasian, I wonder if if you've welcomed Chinese families into your life. And if you're Chinese, if you welcomed Caucasian members into your lives and Filipinos. It's not easy because we are different. We come from different backgrounds, but God's reconciling the world to himself through the grace of Christ, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to welcome people who are different from us. It wasn't easy for Peter who grew up differently from Gentiles. I'm sure it wasn't easy for these Jewish Christians who insisted on the law to change their minds after the decree in Acts 15. But we must do it because it is hard, because this is what God's doing. We must do the hard countercultural thing of living according, in line with the gospel. Because this is God's plan for all. This is grace that's given for all people, and the church should be for all. But these things, I hope none of these things have been surprising to you. The part that I find most surprising about this text is what the council says next, towards the end of their decree, right? The council eventually writes in verse 20 and later on in verse 29 that Gentiles won't be burdened with the law, but they should abstain from eating food polluted by, polluted by idols, uh, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. These four prohibitions. I can go more in depth about this, but we don't have the time for it. But I think these are about Jewish purity laws mentioned in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. Leviticus 17 forbids eating food sacrificed to idols and from eating meat with blood. 
And this, that would make sense also of not eating meat uh, from strangled animals because if they were strangled and were killed, then brain, uh, the, the blood hasn't been drained out yet. Leviticus chapter 18 is about inappropriate sexual relationships, which then would cover the sexual immorality part of this prohibition. What's more important than what these exactly are is why these are prohibited. And that's found in verse 21. James says they should be prohibited from these things because for the law law of Moses has been preached in every city from earliest times and is read in synagogues on every Sabbath. I don't know if you caught that. These things should should be prohibited because the law is being being read everywhere, because Jewish people are everywhere, because they are obedient to the law everywhere. It's sake for the sake of the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians are asked not to eat these things, not to do these things, because it might offend the Jewish sensibilities. And if the Jews and the Gentiles are going to live together as one in the church, that means actually somebody needs to bend a bit. Somebody needs to consider the other people so that they might live in harmony. There's another instance of this in the beginning of chapter 16, and it's shocking. Paul goes on his second missionary trip there, and he meets a man named Timothy, a faithful young man, and Paul wants to take him to the second trip. And what he does in verse 3 is really shocking because he circumcises Timothy because of the Jews who lived in the area. Remember, he just wrote to the Galatians saying, actually, no one needs to be circumcised. He argued with Peter and insisted that Jews and the Gentiles are equal, that they could stay just as they are. They went up to Jerusalem to defend the rights of the Gentiles not to be circumcised. But here, he circumcises Timothy. Why? Well, he's bending for the sake of love. To love the Jewish Christians, and, uh, because it might have been hard if, if Timothy is taken on this trip, uh, it might have been hard for him to be accepted by the Jews and Jewish Christians. So he asks Timothy to bend in love. The Gentile Christians could just have said no to these things, but they don't. Timothy could have just said no to this, but he doesn't, because they are acting in love so that they might be one together, that people might hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that nothing would stand in its way. Later on, 2 Corinthians, Paul would write, will write, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but good but the good of others. And verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. No one should seek their own good, but they should be bending in love. They should be doing it for the glory of God, which means bending in love. Churches have split for all sorts of reasons in the past, haven't they? What kind of instrument we use, how people should drink, uh, dress, whether alcohol should be served in communion and other things. And Shatin Church isn't immune to these discussions and controversies. Just think. I mean, everybody here, I'm sure, is annoyed with something that Shatin Church does. Maybe it's the style of music. Maybe it's maybe too much liturgy or not enough of it. Maybe it's the emphasis on the Bible or lack of whatever. Fill in the blank. But friends, 
It's been God's plan to bring people of all sorts of backgrounds, people of all nations and cultures and language to make them one people, people of God. And it's through that grace of Jesus Christ that he's doing this. And he did it in the time of Wesley. And to a much lesser extent, he is doing it in Hong Kong. He's doing it here in Sha Tin Church. And as these diverse groups of people from multiple cultures and backgrounds, mindsets and values come together and learn to become a family, there will be things that will make us uncomfortable, that we won't like. But I hope as people who are shaped by the grace of Jesus Christ, that you all, all will have the gospel instinct not to insist on your rights, but to bend in love so that we might be one family in Christ, so that nothing would stand in the way of the world seeing the greatness of the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that it is your plan to save all people, people from all nations, every culture, language. Lord, we thank you that it is only by the grace of Jesus Christ that we can be one. Lord, help us to be ground, a church that's grounded in that grace. Church that sees ourselves as sinners who have found grace. Sinners, beggars who have found food. And Lord, may we be a church that welcomes all people. And as we learn to live together, help us to extend your love to all. We thank you that this is your plan. We thank you that this is what you are doing. Help us to participate in it. In Jesus' name, amen.